podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS Missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. The scriptures talk about the many gifts and talents that the Lord bestows on his people. And next week at Pentecost, we'll talk about the sending of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he bestows on us. But one of the more earthly, mundane gifts that God usually bestows on at least one person in every family is the ability to find lost things. And when you don't have a person in that family with that ability, things can get really tough. You need to have at least one person that you can ask, do you know where my keys are? Do do you know where I put my spring coat? I, I was sure that I had my wallet a minute ago. Has anybody seen my wallet around? Where did we park the car? Now, on that vein and in that line, there is an interesting theme in the Gospel of Luke about something that's lost and hard to find. Now, in the case of the Gospel, it's not a thing, but a person. And the person is Jesus. Several times throughout the Gospel, we have people that need to be given directions or need to be shown where to look, almost like a mom taking their little two-year-old and like moving their eyes over so that they can see the beautiful butterfly that's sitting like two feet away. Back at Christmas, you all remember Christmas, right? A few months ago when it was cold and we looked forward to a long winter and a pandemic and all of that. It's hard to imagine that now, but it's so beautiful. But back at Christmas, we hear the Christmas story about the angels and the shepherds. And how the shepherds were out keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord came to them and said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then he gives them directions for where to go and find this one who has been born in the city of David, their savior, Christ the Lord. He says, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So you got to leave the field and go to Bethlehem and look for the manger in which there's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, and that's your Lord. Just a few verses later, we have the only account in any of the Gospels of Jesus as an adolescent, 12-year-old probably, who goes with his parents to Jerusalem, And as the parents are making their way back to Nazareth, they realize about a day out or so of Jerusalem that Jesus is not with them. And so they truck back to Jerusalem and spend three days, according to the gospel account, looking for Jesus before finally somebody clues in that maybe we should go check the temple. (laughs) And sure enough, there he is. And he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Before the trial, which we just heard about about 50 days ago, on Good Friday, we have Judas who has to guide the guards and the servants of the priests to the garden and has to kiss Jesus on the cheek that they would know who the right person is. And as all of these people come out with torches and with weapons to capture this rogue prophet from Nazareth, Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. 
In other words, you knew where to find me. But because you wanted to do this quietly and in darkness, you needed a guide to figure out where I was. Then, of course, we have the incident at the tomb where the women come on Easter morning and coming looking for the body of Jesus, right? And they show up there, and it's in Luke's gospel that the angels turn to them and say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. One more time, people are coming and looking for Jesus in the wrong place. And then finally, we have our reading for this morning, the ascension of Jesus, where the disciples are gathered together, gazing into heaven, eyes off into the distance. And I don't know if it was the same two angels that had to redirect the women and kind of take them gently by the face and redirect their gaze, but I like to think that it was because they had to come and say almost the same thing they said to the women. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you looking for Jesus in the place that you ought not have your gaze directed? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. But you've got work to do, and our Lord will be busy working among you. Did you notice at the beginning of Acts, Luke starts the book by saying, in the first book, God lover, Theophilus, I told you of all Jesus began to do and teach. He's not done. He's still at work. But we have to be careful about where we look to see him. Now, that's all well and good for 2,000 years ago, which is what Luke and Acts are recounting. And thousands of miles away in Palestine, which is a place I've never been to, Maybe some of you have had a chance to go to Israel. My parents certainly did, and aunts and uncles, but it's not in my budget and certainly not either financially or time-wise. And this may not be the place we want to go like right now. We might want to wait a little bit. But what about now? I mean, we live in Montreal in the 21st century, but we still have the same question, which is where is Jesus now? If the angels were to come and show up right now amongst us and they were to gently sort of put their, their fingers besides their cheeks and turn our heads, where would they turn them to? Where would they want us to look? Well, the first place that we look for Jesus but will not find him and are told that we will not find him is in power and in glory. So when they had come together, they asked him, the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, because that's what the disciples were still thinking was supposed to happen. And restoring the kingdom of Israel, to Israel was supposed to look a certain way. The disciples were going to get thrones. If you go back over the Gospels, there's all this discussion about who gets to sit next to Jesus on the right and the left. Who gets to judge the people? Judging meaning not like our court system, but ruling. Who gets to make the orders? Who gets to give the instructions? Who gets to have the servants in the palaces? 
That's kind of what they're asking. Is it now, Lord? Like we've waited all this time and then we had to go through this whole Good Friday business and this whole Holy Saturday grieving part and then the whole Easter and then trying to understand about the resurrection. Is it now? Like is now the time that we get the castle? Is now the time that we get the armies? Is now the time that we defeat Rome? But Jesus had already warned earlier as Luke records in chapter 17, that when we look for the kingdom, we are going to look in the wrong places. Being asked by the Pharisees, Luke records, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You get it. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. That's the kind of kingdom the disciples were looking for. And like the disciples, we would very much like the kingdom of God to be something that we can see, something tangible, something that would demonstrate that our faith is correct. Because look what happens if you're a Christian, and look what happens if you're not. Look what happens to the nation that follows Jesus, and look what happens to the people who don't. We would love to be able to show that. Same thing with our churches. We'd love to be able to prove we have the right church because our pastor will heal you and your pastor won't. Na, 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 na. That's how you know you're going to the right spot, right? We want a kingdom we can see where Jesus's ideas and his preaching work out and have tangible benefits. Luther called that the theology of glory. And he said it is the greatest enemy that Christians have to face next to Satan and death. What is the theology of glory? Well, as Luther was in a disputation in Heidelberg, he said this, a person does not deserve to be called a theologian a studier of God who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. One deserves to be called a theologian, however, when one sees the visible and manifest things of God in suffering and at the cross. A theology of glory, Luther said, calls evil good and good evil. A theology, a theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. The disciples, as I said, wanted Israel restored to a place of power and earthly protection. That is what you might call a triumphal theology of glory. That Jesus will come and make life great for his followers and miserable for everybody else. As one Lutheran writer, Gene Edward Veith, puts it, a theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. A theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A theology of glory expects the church to be perfect and always growing. If a theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. And if he experiences failure and weakness, if his church has problems, and if he is not healed, 
then he's often utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of his faith and sometimes questioning the very existence of God, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Now, we're good Lutherans, so we don't fall for that. We know that God is not here to establish an earthly kingdom. There's not going to be a Lutheran Vatican with its own ambassador at the UN, with its own army. We get that. But we fall into the theology of glory in a little bit more subtle way. Sometimes we struggle, for example, with why pastors don't always act like pastors. I'm a pastor, and I struggle with why pastors don't always act like pastors. Might be the biggest struggle that I have in my life. We look at the Roman Catholic priest scandal and the damage that it has done to so many Christians. We trusted this man, not just personally, but we trusted him with our children. And God let him do all these things that he's been accused of. How can there still be a God of love? One of the largest Protestant conglomerations of churches around the world, the Hillsong Church that started out of Australia, that so many people sing the music of, even Lutherans. Their pastor in New York City ends up having to leave the church in great scandal because of the abuses that he's had and the affairs that he's had with other women while he's married with children. In case you have no idea who I'm talking about, this was Justin Bieber's pastor, him you might know of. How can this be in the Christian church? The very seminary that I studied with had two professors, one just before I arrived and one just after, that had to leave because of sexual, grievous sexual misconduct in our seminary. Then, of course, there's the whole problem of Christians not being more Christian. We see all these people out there. They claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. They claim to follow his gospel. They claim that his word is rooted deeply in their heart. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. We, they claim that they want to have the fruits of the Spirit in their life, and yet so many of us don't see them. These are the same people that will go out on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else and say the most horrible, mean, nasty things. And on Sunday morning, come and praise our Lord Jesus. But you know what? To think that somehow pastors will be perfect, Christians will always be good Christians, that churches will always be wonderful, warm, welcoming, fantastic places is just a softer, gentler, kinder version of the theology of glory. It is trying to call evil good and good evil, and it is not calling the thing what it is, which is that we only see Jesus at work in suffering and the cross. Do you know who struggled with all of this for almost five decades? Do you know who I wish I could have gone back and introduced to the theology of the cross, although she kind of was getting it at some points? Mother Teresa. I don't know if you know this about Mother Teresa, but she 
firmly felt the presence of God in her life when she was called to go and work with the poor in Calcutta. She even claimed that she heard Jesus specifically call her to go and take on this work. Went to her supervisors and said, God has told me to go and do this. But later on, she wrote, almost from the minute I started doing it, I lost a sense of the presence of God. In fact, she wrote, when I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Mother Teresa. And she wasn't the first, and she won't be the last, because there is no theology of glory. Now, what does this have to do with finding Jesus? What does this have to do with his ascension? What does it have to do with the first question we asked, which is, where do the angels come and turn our gaze so that we might see our Lord at work? Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier that verse from Luke chapter 17, where the Pharisees come and ask about the kingdom of God. Are you going to reveal the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you are not going to see it the way you think it's going to come. And then Jesus goes on to say this, which you probably have heard before. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's among you, and you don't always see it. First, God's kingdom, God's rule in the world, that God's work in the world. Don't think kingdom as a piece of real estate. Don't think nation. Don't make that mistake. I've tried to drill that into you before. Kingdom means reign. It means rule. It means where is God at work? The first place is in the imperfect love that exists in the world. And it is imperfect, and we shouldn't think that it's going to be perfect. And yet, we should be looking around at all sorts of different things and realizing Christ is at work. If it is true what the preacher writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which we're going to study in Bible study in two or three weeks, that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, if that is true, why do families stay together? Why do so many husbands and wives stay together? Why do so many children tolerate their parents and parents keep on loving their children? Why is there ever grace shown to the repentant? Why is there ever anywhere in the world at any time a period of peace? It's not all the time. And it's not everywhere, but the fact that it exists at all is a sign that Jesus' ascension meant something, that he does continue to work and rule in the world. And secondly, of course, Jesus has always, always promised that wherever we abide in his word, wherever his gifts are shared amongst the people from his hand, he will be there. 
he will be at work. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. To abide is to remain, to physically stay put, to not be running around, to keep on keeping on, we might say in our day and age. And that happens when we let Jesus continue to speak to us through his word, because he's not done speaking. That's the point that Luke makes at the beginning of Acts. I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's not done. Wherever and whenever his word is spoken, that he must give up his life as a ransom for many, that the Son of Man must suffer and die at the hands of sinful men and after three days rise again. Whenever Jesus comes and speaks to you and to I, the very same thing he said to the disciples on that very first Easter, peace be with you, then peace comes to troubled hearts and minds and souls. That's where Jesus is right now. And it doesn't always look great, but he's there none the same. I read Stephen King. Maybe some of you do too. My favorite book of his is still The Stand, even though we've just been through a pandemic. Mostly because in The Stand, the pandemic that he's dealing with is the complete numerical opposite of COVID. Instead of 1% of the population being affected or dying, there's only less than 1% that survives this virus, which incidentally is released from an American lab, not one in China, apparently. But one of the heroes of the book is a figure named Mother Abigail, who lives in Hemingford Home, Nebraska. I've actually been out there to Nebraska. It is sort of God's country because it is not a glorious country. It's a country of the cross, and therefore we know that Jesus is there. But another character in the book is a man who can't speak. His name is Nick. And Abigail says to him, the Bible it doesn't say what happened to Noah and his family after the flood went down. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was some awful tussle for the souls of those few people, for their souls, their bodies, their way of thinking. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is what is awaiting us. Now, there is a dark man in the stand, the devil's son, who is trying to win over the souls of those who have been left behind by this pandemic. And Nick responds, how much do you know about this dark man? Do you know where he is? Mother Abigail says, I know what he's about, but not who he is or where. He is simply the purest evil left in the world. Nick listens as the conversation goes on, realizing that if they didn't do something about him, the dark man was probably going to come and eat them all for dinner. And he writes on his notepad, though, I don't believe in God. Mother Abigail laughs and says, bless you, Nick, but that don't matter. God believes in you. That's the theology of the cross. We look around us and say, but, but nobody believes in you, Lord. Nobody follows you. Nobody listens. And yet, nonetheless, Jesus says, peace be with you. 
And wherever we abide in his word is where his rule is happening. Ascension's a movement word. Monte in French, right? And monte is an être word. It is something that you are, not something that you have. And so the ascension is not about Jesus being gone. It is about who he now is. And while his presence is not immediately obvious, he is where we abide in his word and receive his gifts. And through those things, realize he's never actually left. And what a sorry state the world would be in if he had. The evil one, the dark man, running amok, eating us all for dinner. The fact that Satan hasn't done that, that love still exists, that people still imperfectly want to love one another, that the church still exists, that people still come to hear his word, is proof that Jesus has ascended and has defeated the evil one. Amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless your week.